This episode of The Murder of My Family is brought to you by Madison Reed. Madison Reed has hair color that's gorgeous, salon quality, multidimensional, ammonia-free, and delivered to your door, all for under $25. Visit madison-reed.com for 10% off plus free shipping on your first hair color kit with promo code FAMILY. That's promo code FAMILY. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash themurderinmyfamily. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. Please allow me a moment to share some important information before we get started. If you find that you enjoy this podcast, please rate and review it wherever you listen to podcasts so that the show can continue to grow and reach new listeners. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderinmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at murderinmyfam or by searching for The Murder in My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support the show via Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder of my family. Some benefits of being a Patreon supporter include access to bonus content not heard in regular episodes of the podcast, plus early access to ad-free episodes. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I give shout-outs to any new supporters. In this episode, I'd like to thank Nikki Zarnecki, Shonda Moreau, and John Lorden, who, by the way, is a very talented YouTube host and has a new true crime podcast called Crime After Crime. And thank you to all of the supporters that generously donate and keep the podcast going and improving. In the last episode, I mentioned that the website discoverpods.com is currently accepting nominations for your favorite podcast. Some of the categories include Best New Podcast of 2018 and Best True Crime Podcast of 2018. If you think The Murder of My Family is worthy of consideration, please visit discoverpods.com and submit your nomination form. It only takes a few minutes to fill it out, but nominations have to be submitted by no later than October 26th. Thank you, and now on with the show. Nancy Jo Canood was a loving 39-year-old mother of three, when her life ended on Tuesday, March 3rd, 1981. 37 years later, her family and the police are still searching for something, anything, that will result in an arrest in Nancy's murder case. Many of them are convinced that they know who killed Nancy, but they lack that missing puzzle piece that can provide them with certainty. Let's go back to the beginning. Nancy was an attractive woman with long, dark hair and had a personality to match. Peaceful and friendly, the church-going woman didn't have an enemy in the world, or so it seemed. She lived in Pawnee Vedra Beach, Florida, in St. John's County, less than 20 miles from Jacksonville. On the morning of her murder, Nancy, a stay-at-home mom, was home alone in her condo located in the Fountains Condominium Complex, a gated community with a guard check at the main entrance. Her husband of two years had left for a business trip, and none of Nancy's children from her previous marriage were at home. Without warning, at around 7 a.m., 
Nancy was alarmed by a noise downstairs. Alarmed enough that she called the operator asking to be connected to police. This was in the time before 911 was operational in that area of Florida. The operator could tell that Nancy was frightened, but before she could connect Nancy to police, the call disconnected. Despite Nancy hanging up the call, the operator did connect to the police and told them about the call, and they responded by sending out a patrol car to the condo to do a welfare check. The officer knocked on the door, but didn't get an answer. After looking around the area and not seeing anything unusual, that officer got back into his car and left. Later that afternoon, at around 3 p.m., Nancy's teenage daughter, Suzanne, arrived home from school and let herself into the condo. She immediately noticed how calm and quiet it was. Feeling something wasn't right, Suzanne called out to her mom, who should have been home, but she got no reply. Suzanne walked up the stairs and towards Nancy's bedroom. As she got closer, something inside her warned her not to walk all the way into the bedroom. As Suzanne got to where she could see into the bedroom, she noticed her mom's feet just inside the doorway and a pool of blood on the floor. The terrified young girl raced downstairs and out of the condo towards the neighbors to get help. That neighbor called police and they quickly headed to the condo complex. As police headed into Nancy's bedroom, they were greeted by a horrible sight. Nancy Jo Canode was dead on the floor in a pool of blood. A rope was tied tightly around her neck and through her mouth almost reminiscent of a bit on a horse. It was apparent that Nancy had been stabbed repeatedly. An ice pick and knife had been used to savagely attack Nancy. The steak knife used in the attack belonged to the home and was taken from the kitchen. Police found it lying on Nancy's back. Police noted that there were items scattered around Nancy's room that led them initially to think that robbery was a possible motive. However, the items seemed to have been staged and after investigation, it was discovered that nothing had been taken. The investigation of the crime scene itself led police to think that the killer had entered the condo through a sliding door. There was no sign of forced entry on the door, and the Canode condo backed up to the rear of the condo complex, and it was secluded. It butted up against a dirt road and was a perfect area for someone to sneak in undetected. Police canvassed the area questioning complex residents and asking if they had seen anything unusual. As it turned out, there were witnesses that had seen something out of the ordinary. Some teenagers had seen a blue car parked on the dirt road the morning of the murder. That dirt road was one way to circumvent entering the condo complex through the guarded main entrance. Despite the lead on the car, witnesses couldn't give much detail about it, and they didn't see any people around it. Another neighbor of Nancy's two doors down recounted a strange incident for police. A few weeks prior, someone had knocked on this neighbor's door. When they answered it, they were surprised to see a salesman standing there trying to sell her some photography products. Since solicitors weren't able to get into the complex because of the security measures in place, the neighbor questioned the man about how he had been able to get onto the grounds. The salesman left without incident, but afterwards, this neighbor asked Nancy Canode if the salesman had knocked on her door too, and Nancy told her that he had. A few weeks later, Nancy was dead. The salesman wasn't identified by police, so it can't be determined if he had anything to do with Nancy's murder. But it was certainly proof enough that unauthorized people may have been able to gain access to that complex. Nancy's husband was contacted while he was on his business trip, and he returned to the condo after being told that there was an emergency. When he arrived home, he was allowed to view Nancy's body, and his reaction, or lack of one, 
caught investigators' attention. As they looked into his past, some things about him troubled investigators, and he seemed to become the focus of police attention, and the notion of a random intruder seemed to be like less of a possibility. I will not name Nancy's husband for various reasons, nor will I discuss the reasons he was suspected by police. However, if you'd like to know more, I highly suggest watching the show Cold Justice, who did an episode about Nancy's case in Season 3, Episode 5, titled Operator Help. The show delves into the case and into the suspicions of family and police. There seem to be only a few possibilities here. First, that Nancy Canode was killed in a random attack. The other is that she was targeted, possibly killed by someone close to her, or hired by somebody close to her. Serial killer Henry Lee Lucas was supposedly in the Jacksonville area at the time of Nancy's murder, and confessed to killing her. Investigators didn't believe him, as his story didn't match up with the evidence. Like he had done in other murder confessions, Lucas recanted and was ultimately written off as a suspect. In the end, I think police have an idea of exactly who killed Nancy Canode, but as I mentioned earlier, they lacked the last puzzle piece to make an arrest. Nancy Canode wasn't even 40 years old when she was murdered, and she missed out on some of the best years of her life, missed grandchildren, and missed her golden years. Although Nancy's case has received some national attention after being featured on Cold Justice, her family has been saddened and frustrated by the lack of an arrest after almost four decades. Nancy's oldest daughter, Shuri, joined me to discuss Nancy's case and the struggle to find justice for so long. That conversation is next after this word from our sponsor. The future of at-home hair color is here with Madison Reed. Gorgeous salon quality hair color delivered to your door on your schedule, all for under $25. Madison Reed is reinventing hair color with the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color and an ammonia-free formula made with ingredients you can feel good about. And Madison Reed is Leaping Bunny certified, which is one more great reason to feel good about trying Madison Reed. One box contains everything you need to color with confidence, including barrier cream, a protective cap, two pairs of gloves, and a cleansing wipe. Not to mention it has a cream-based formula, which means no drips, no mess. Just gorgeous color with 100% gray coverage. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. And Madison Reed would like to honor listeners of The Murder of My Family with 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with the promo code FAMILY at checkout. That's promo code FAMILY. Join the hundreds of thousands of women who have tried and loved Madison Reed. Visit madison-reed.com. And now back to the show. Cherie, thank you for joining me to discuss your mom's case. Thank you, Mike. I was looking forward to it. My pleasure. Your mom's murder is something that has haunted your family for 37 years now. How tough a road has this been for your family? Mike, it's been the toughest thing we've ever had to endure, to be quite honest with you. Um, Especially at such a young age for all the children in the family. And for it to be so unexpected also, you know, to, to be told on the phone that your mother, you need to, well, I was personally not told on the phone that my mother was dead. I was just told to get down there as soon as possible. I've been calling her all day. Uh, unfortunately, as you all know, 
there is a show out there. Uh, it's on TNT's called Justice. I do believe it's uh, available to be seen on Netflix right now. Though the show itself has been out for, I'd say, close to 10 years now. Um, but on the show, you will see where my sister did come home at a very young age, the age of 15, to find her mother in a pool of blood. And very shocking to her, she she ran back down the stairs and to a neighbor's house. So that's how, how we started there evening that day. And let's move back a little bit before that, if we can. It, you know, it's 1981. What was your family's living arrangements? I assume that you and your sister and, and you had a brother too, is that correct? Yes, my brother was there later in the day, yes. And were you all living, uh, when you were younger and teenagers around that age, you, were you all living together? Well, no, we weren't actually. Um, when mom and dad split up, my brother went to live with my father and my sister. I was out on my own. I had graduated high school and um, actually we all stayed with my father and his wife uh, because it seemed to me like everywhere that this man that my mom married would move, would move, they would move up and move for some reason, always somewhere kind of far out. It was almost like the children wouldn't want to go on purpose. Uh, in my mind, that's the way I see it because we have friends and, you know, at that age, you're, you have boyfriends and friends and you just don't want to be, you know, way out in the middle of nowhere. So, but, um, so yes, uh, my sister ended up because she was at such a younger age. I had graduated high school, moved out and was living with you know, my other half at the time, my boyfriend. And um, my sister was uh, back and forth to my father's house on weekends and back to mom's during the week. And I think, I do believe that's how it worked back out. Yeah, that's how everything worked out back then. So in March of 1981, uh, your mom was alone in the condo. Um, it was a condo, but they rented. It was never... A purchase, in other words, um, they never okay. bought a condo, but it was at the time, yes, called the Fountains. The bottom floor is the the base where you walk in the back sliding door and the very front door, which has a key to it, and um, then you walk up the stairs to get to the two bedrooms and another full bath with the shower and all, so there's a half bath downstairs and a kitchen and that's your living space. And so it was all one unit. So your mom is home alone on this particular day and she calls and you find this out later, but she calls 911 or whatever police dispatch they have at the time. Uh, was that pre 911 or did she actually call 911? Well, actually that's how they, we got the name of the show. Uh, of course we didn't come up with it. The uh, producers of the show did, but she dialed zero for operator back then. In fact, if on the show you'll you'll hear and see the operator who answered that call. Uh, I'll tell you how frantic my mom's voice sounded, and she desperately was calling for help. And um, so there was no nine one one back then. It was strictly zero for operator. And yes, she did call 
immediately as soon as she heard an intruder down below. And uh, it was unfortunate that they didn't come right away. And um, they came later, knocked on the door. Um, when nobody answered, they actually just uh, decided to leave. And um, to this day, I'm sure that's one of the biggest regrets that we all have, you know, is that nobody tried to get inside before my sister did after school because she had been dead all day, killed in the early morning hours. And when she did call, she ended the phone call, though, as well as possibly either she changed her mind or maybe somebody scared her into hanging up. Has that been determined, do you know? Phone line, I'm trying to remember. I think the phone was taken from her and slammed down, or I just know that the operator was able to take the call and do a dispatch. So actually the phone line was available. and uh, But she did hang up frantically in a hurry. And then the police, you mentioned, go there and do a welfare check, but nobody answers, and they just turn around and leave. Exactly. And I couldn't imagine that in this day and time, but I don't understand, but I guess he had his reasons back then. The police officer, I'm saying, I, again, I don't understand why this happened that way, but it did, and um, it's a sad, sad thing that we look back upon, and we... um, we regret it. We wish we could do something about it. And, um, you know, I, I just, I'm, I'm dumbfounded. I just can't understand why he did not go in and investigate the scene of the crime. When someone calls for help and they have that sound in their voice of fear, like, like my mother did and like the operator said she did, why he would not go inside? I believe there was a security guard around there also, but... Um, I don't think he stopped and even bothered to ask questions. It's your sister that found your mom's body. How did she cope with that? I mean, I can't even imagine how that must have felt and, and scared her. How did she deal with that after after that? Well, Mike, I'm going to be honest with you. She came upstairs. Well, first she came in, said, Mom, I'm home, just like she always did. You know, got a banana. And she didn't hear anything back from Mom, like, hi, I'm upstairs, or, you know, glad you're home, I miss you. Um, So as she creeped upstairs, she just got this eerie feeling that something was wrong. And because Mom's car was out there, of course. So when she got to the top of the steps, she saw blood, lots of it, and she saw Mom's feet. And she said something just told her to turn and run, you know, I, I guess in the back of her mind, I'm not sure if she thought the killer was still there. She knew something was, was desperately wrong, desperately wrong. And she ran to the neighbors, uh, the girl that she walked to school with every day. Um, her mother grabbed my sister, held on to her tight, and said, hey, let's get the police over here again, uh, obviously, the operator. And they did. Of course, the news were there first. Uh, news crews, by the time I got there, um, I couldn't even get by anybody except to see my own father and my family, my grandmother, and everybody was there, you know. By then it had hit news, and 
I drove a long drive all the way from Art Museum Drive where I was working down, way down to Ponte Vedra, and I don't even remember the drive. I can tell you I probably did about 120 miles an hour and uh, just came to, I came, sorry, I'm trying not to cry. I came to a scene that it was not one that I ever expected in my life to see. She was only 39 years old. She was my best friend. I was supposed to spend that night with her because her husband was supposed to be in Georgia all night. And I was totally shocked. I was like, this can't be happening. You you know, back then, especially, I mean, it's nothing common like you see today on, on the TV. It, it, it's like watching it that night. We're still in disbelief, you know, that this is not, this is not happening. This is not my mother, you know, but it was, unfortunately. And my sister has had to deal with it all these years. Yes, she has. At the time this happened, you were the oldest. You were out of the house as an adult. How did you handle this? What did, what did you think? What was going through your mind when after the initial shock wore off, did you immediately think, I know who did this, I have an idea? Um, was there any any of that in your mind? No. For some reason, there wasn't. And after seeing the show, Cold Justice, I can't... Um, I, I should have put two and two together, um, but I didn't. And unfortunately, actually, my brother was the oldest. But he... Um, he actually joined the police force, as a matter of fact, after that happened. But I did not actually in my mind think that was ever possible. But after watching the show and hearing everything that the policeman had to say and just things that went on during the funeral and everything, uh, two and two started to be put together. But, um, again, that's police work. Um we try to keep hope that um, that we have, you know, a suspect and that one day, you know, uh, the suspect will have to account for, you know, what may have possibly happened. And if so, then justice will prevail. We will not give up. That's our motto. We have created a Facebook page for everybody that has wanted to reach out to us, and we have close to 2,000 uh, likes. There's not one person that has not a, agreed with the show or agreed with what happened in the show. And um, Mike, it's just a horrible thing to have to live with because she really was my best friend. We confided a lot in each other, and um, my heart was broken. I... Uh, I went through a bad time. My sister went through a very bad time. And my brother, I'm sure, handled it in his own way. Guys are a little bit tougher. They keep to themselves. But my father was a good man. He was there for us. And uh, he always has been, even to this day. So you mentioned a little bit about what you didn't really put two and two together until you watched the show, Cold Justice, that did the episode about the case. And then at that point you sort of, it made sense to you 
And and just to let the audience know, the listeners, that in the show, without spoiling too much, they can go out and watch the episode. They zero in on two, two possibilities of somebody that knew your mom and was very close to your mom and a complete stranger that just happened to gain access. And out of those two possibilities, they come to a more likely one and and you yourself sort of believe that it could very well be the same person that they came to believe it is. Is, yes, is that and, correct? And, is that a correct assumption that you are in agreement in your own mind with them? Well, Mike, I started noticing things before the show, um, remembering things my mother had said to me. And, of course, um, it took us several years until I finally had met up with, um, actually, Chuck Mulligan, the Commander Mulligan, excuse me. He is uh, in charge of St. Dunn's County Sheriff's Office, and he's the spokesperson and the commander. And I met his wife, and I was um, talking to her one day. Didn't know she knew and didn't really think um, she would even bring it up, but she did. She said, I know who you are, and I, I know about your mother. And she said, you should call my husband. He's very familiar with the case. So I did. And when I did, that's when we reopened it. And that's after speaking to the police for quite some time and the sheriff who was there at the time that day, speaking to as many people as we could that were um, at the scene of the crime that day, my sister, my grandmother, and I, uh, my brother was working at the time and couldn't be there. Um, yes, we we then started thinking, even before the show came out, oh, my goodness, this is actually could have what could have happened, you know. With the with the main suspect, yeah. So I, um, yeah, I, I that's that's how we all started thinking differently after talking to the police. Yes. Unfortunately, there's just not enough evidence to make an arrest or bring to court this person that you believe uh, is likely the the murder of your mom. Do you ever give up hope that something will come out that they will find something else? to to be that final piece of the puzzle that solves the case? Never, never. Like I said before, our motto is we will not give up. And as long as I'm alive and she's alive and my brother's alive, we will not stop searching for justice and her killer. And that is our motto, and we will stick with it. Because in our hearts, she's still alive. And she was our mother. And whoever took her from us will pay for that. And justice. And we're in God's heaven. That's what we believe. So let me ask you, when you first found out that the show Cold Justice was going to try and tackle your mom's case, was that a, a moment when you felt there was some hope and that this might be the chance to really get some attention on the case? It was. Oh, my gosh. I I don't... You saw it, of course, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And it opened so many doors. And so many women came forward that I, I felt bad for each and every one of them. 
except for one in particular, um, my mother's husband's first wife. Um, but like I say, in the show, um, it's TNT's Cold Justice. It's called Operator Help slash St. John's County. To anybody out there who would like to see it, if you watch it, you will see what I mean about what I just, how we just really started our digging and, and looking. And actually, my sister herself found out some information that uh, even the police didn't know. So she should have been a detective. I'll tell you what, she did a great job on on that. So we've done some digging ourselves, and um, we will not give up, and we will not stop digging for more clues, for more evidence, for more help from other people, of course. We have um, our Project Cold Case, who's been working with us, and we have some other sources that that believe in us, that want to help, and St. John's County Sheriff's Office has been very good to us. They, they've worked very hard. Um, we have a new detective. Unfortunately, Detective uh, Sean Tice has been moved to sergeant, but he was um, very, very knowledgeable of the case, and he was very helpful to us as even to my grandmother, you could just tell that he would t- kind of take her under his wing and say, it's going to be all right. I think he even called her grandmother once or twice, but he just knew how much she meant. You know, I, I'm sure losing a daughter, you know, you don't want your children to die before you do. In other words, losing her child was, um, I think it's what killed my grandfather. It just literally sent him into depression and then sickness. And, but, um, but grandma was tough, very tough. She, she, she didn't, you know, she said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna live. And she was 99 years old before she passed away. And that was only because she fell and broke her hip. But she was bound and determined to live until that, to see that case solved. And I don't know if everybody knows this, but we had her name changed also on the, uh, tombstone. Her name has been changed back to her original, uh, maiden name, Cantor. We did not want to see anybody else's name up there. And, and that brings me to a, a question, actually. When I was doing research for this case, I found uh, a picture of your mom's headstone. And it mentioned, there's a little blurb, and I don't know exactly who wrote this under the the headstone, but it, it just said a little bit about her case. It said that there was, that she was raped. Is that accurate, do you know? I don't know. That is not accurate. I, I'm not sure how that ever even got into the situation at the time. They were doing some, but all of the evidence has been, all of the DNA, in other words, has been sent back to labs and stuff. So no, no, absolutely not. In fact, the weirdest thing is that jewelry was thrown all across the floor and, you know, I believe only knocked over because she was putting up such a good fight for her for her life. But I will say that nothing was stolen, nothing was taken. So at the time, we can't understand how somebody just came in for one reason, one reason only, that was to kill her, and yet not take anything and not rape her, like you said. She was a beautiful woman, and uh, 
I just, she was a Christian woman, and um, I pray to God, thank you, Lord, that she was not raped, because she didn't deserve that. She didn't deserve any of this, but more than ever, she didn't deserve that. And just touching on the DNA, do you know for sure that they have the actual killer's DNA? Um, there's, I can't really discuss that, I'm sorry, That's too much uh, knowledge, um, during the investigation, unfortunately, I I would if I could, but right now I can't. You don't um, want to hurt the case and hurt the chances hurt of it the being case. solved. Sure, yeah, sure, yeah, that's understandable. And if you know what I'm saying, yeah. uh, if there's a lead out there, and you know, we just uh, can't say one way or the other. There may or may not be, but you know, that is for the detectives and us to continue working on and we certainly will i was just going to tell you mike how much it means that you cared enough to 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 do a story on about my mother um it touches uh, us deeply and we really really appreciate it it means a lot because as i said she was a good christian woman and she did not deserve this kind of treatment um it had to be the devil himself who did this i'll be honest with you the devil himself. And money is often a big motive in things like this, if you know what I mean. And if anybody's watched the show, they'll see little little things. You just have to pick up on them as you watch the show. And yeah, that's, that's what I would recommend everybody that wants to really get a more detailed uh, account of this case is watch that episode of Cold Justice. And I think you'll see... Um, pretty clearly who uh, the the suspect is. We're not going to name him here, but um, they have their reasons, and, and it becomes clearer in, in the episode. Uh, but getting back to the DNA for a second, you know, we see all these cases being solved all the time with, with old DNA. Hopefully they have DNA because if they do, that's the, the most likely thing that could possibly solve the case so even though you can't talk about it i hope that they do and i hope they can do something with it to track down the person that did this yes i'll be honest with you they do and um actually we've gotten extra funding from the state of florida to have it sent to a special lab in sarasota so not that we're special or anything but we've you know other people have been working very hard on the case and uh it, it's turned out to be very helpful. It really has been. So DNA does mean a lot. And, uh, yeah, so thank you so much. Uh, I think everybody that watches the show, like I say, on our page, there's 2,000 people out there that all agree with us. So all you have to do is kind of look for yourself without me actually having to even say it. I just wanted to look at one other angle for for a second. Um, You mentioned you weren't sure back then if they had security or not, but um, just the overall area from your memory, was there any kind of violent crimes or crimes against women or anything similar to this in that area around that time? No, they had that, what was it, Henry Lucas, Henry, I'm trying to remember, they were a serial killer out there at the time, but... He tried to come forward and say they they interviewed him because at the time he was you know out there but he was not 
generally in the area of Florida. You know, it wasn't the only place he was killing people or women. Uh, he did say he did it, but after a polygraph and after talking further with him, they finally just said, this guy is, he's just wanting more recognition for killing more people, but he actually did not do it. And they could tell, and they finally just found out that he's not the one that did it. And uh, you remember who I'm talking about, right? Yes. Uh, I, think, I think you're talking about Henry uh, Lee Lucas. Yes. Yes, that's him. Yes, they did interview him, but uh, at the time, no, no, sir, at all. There were not any killers walking around. Like I say, back then, this was such a uncommon thing, uh, like it is today. It's so different. So to to hear it, to see it on the news, to even just know it happened back then was so disturbing that. It drove her best friend crazy. Her best friend, um, she was named Scotty at the time. She has since died of a uh, cancer. She became a police officer also and was bound and determined to find my mother's killer. She was her other best friend. I was her best friend and she was her other best friend. And she she worked diligently, and unfortunately, by the time I got in touch with her to find out what all she had dug up or found, she couldn't even talk. She was so sick. So that was a, a sad, sad situation right there because she really loved my mother and cared a lot about her, and she she wanted to know. She wanted to know what happened to my mother, just like we do now. So. And I wanted to close by talking not about the murder of your mom's last minutes, but I'd rather talk to close this out about her life itself, who she was as a person and as a mom to you. I mean, from the pictures I've seen of her, she looked like a beautiful, warm and kind person. Is that who she, who she was in, in your memory? Oh yes. Oh my gosh. I mean, she was a Christian woman. She would help anybody. I mean, if they wanted food, she'd give them food. If they wanted the shirt off her back, she would give it to them. She went to church faithfully. I, I just loved her. I mean, she was beautiful. I mean, there was there was lawyers out there that wanted to date her. There were, I, I can't tell you the men that she had once, you know, she was single. And she was on a Sports Illustrated ad um, for the insurance company and that she had worked for at the time. And... That's how beautiful she was. I mean, she just, her face, I can tell you one quick funny story. Um, she went out of the house one day and she didn't have makeup on. And she came back one and she was, she said to me, oh, you're not going to believe what happened. I said, what, mother? And she said, I went to the grocery store with no makeup on, she said, and there were three construction workers out there that whistled at me. This was long before her death, of course, she said, but they actually... She, in other words, she thought that she needed makeup to be beautiful, but she didn't. She was so beautiful inside and out that a guy could look at her without makeup on and still want to say, you're beautiful, you know, because she was, she was my heart and, um, she was, she was just a beautiful woman inside and out. You will not find a better person out there. And uh, it's a shame that the world has lost such a such a wonderful person who had 
daughters that loved her and a son that cared and uh, even an ex-husband who still loves her. Hopefully the, the truth comes out one day. You find out who did it and they pay the price for what they did. And I hope that the good and fond memories you have of your mom's life outweigh the negative and terrible memories you have of her death. Absolutely, Mike. You're right. I, I do. I mean, I'm just, I concentrate on the good things. Her her best picture is right next to my bed. I look at it every night. Blow her a kiss goodnight. And, um, and then keep grandmother's you know, and right next to it. And I know that they both, both were, um, yeah, you're right. I, 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 I'm going to cry any, any minute now. Say thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. She was a loving person, and I, I just still miss her tremendously, and I love her more than anybody will ever know. And we have lost, we have lost one of, one of God's, you know, She's with God now, and we'll all be together one day. But that the man needs to come to justice that did this, and we will make sure he does. And, and the most important thing I'd like to put out there, who should people call if they do know something or they think they have information that will help solve your mom's case? Oh, absolutely, please. Um, we'll even put a reward out there. Um, it is St. John's County Sheriff's Office. Um, you can speak to Sheriff Shore himself, please. And also, if you just like to keep it simple and you're in Jacksonville, you can always call Project Cold Case. They handle homicide cases, and Ryan Beckman is his name. I'm sure he'd be happy to. Both of them have web pages. And uh, if you could look up the, um, like I say, either either one would be happy to take the information but um there is a reward out and if somebody would come forward with some information uh we would be extremely happy and blessed and would definitely definitely appreciate that and you also mentioned that you did have a facebook page for your mom and what's the name of the facebook page yes it's called justice for nancy joe j-o canode slash we will not give up. And I hope people that are listening to this in your area will take the time and share that page on their social media on Facebook and maybe spread the word in your area so that it does uh, reach other people that might know something and maybe come forward. That would be awesome. I'll be praying for that each and every night. Mike, thank you so much. I, I hope so. I will be I will be hoping that day comes and we will not we will not give up. That's our name. That's our logo. I mean to say. That's a good outlook to have, a positive outlook, and, and I hope you don't give up and hopefully do get some answers. Yes, we have so much outcry and output from the community support is what I'm trying to say, that we can't give up. If you had 2,000 people looking to you to say, hey, justice needs to be served. There's someone out there that needs to go to jail. We saw the show. Why is it? Why isn't there an arrest? You know, you're you're not going to give up. You're not going to let those people down. And I'm not going to. And I know my sister won't. So, and my brother, of course. So, thank you. No, we will always have our have our hopes to and our prayers to find you know justice. Thank you, Mike. I've enjoyed talking to you. This has been an awesome 
show, and I hope everybody out there gets more familiar with you and, and the good work that you're doing for victims and homicides and families. And people need people need this. People need what you're doing. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Murder of My Family. As we wrap up this episode, be sure to check out previews for two true crime podcasts that I think you'll enjoy, Date with Dateline and Dark Divide. And remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. Diabolical Vengeance Betrayal Bad hair. Leaning. Hi, everyone. This is Kimberly. And this is Katie. And we have a weekly podcast called A Date with Dateline, a recap of Dateline episodes. We talk about important issues like grainy surveillance footage, cell phone towers, Andrea Canning's white jeans, and Mankey's hankies. We delve into the details of any victim who's ever loved life or lit up a room. So find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and iTunes to make A Date with Dateline. And remember, don't watch alone. A Date with Dateline is a podcast hosted by two professional amateur true crime TV experts with no formal training but evidence lockers filled with snark and uninformed opinions. Hey listeners, my name is Krista and I host a narrative true crime podcast called The Dark Divide. I've always been interested in the events and circumstances which shape a seemingly ordinary life into something made out of our worst nightmares. And now, I get to take you along through the depths of obsessive research and my need to explore the unknown. So I invite you to come stare into the abyss with me. You can listen on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, and wherever else you enjoy your favorite podcasts. See you there.